Thank you, Steve. Thank you. It's good to be up here and to have the privilege of sharing God's word this morning. I want to ask you a question. Have you heard of Tony Pandy? Have you heard of Tony Pandy? Not Andy Pandy, Tony Pandy. <clears throat> well, it's a mining town in South Wales. You might have heard of that. But it is also, I am told, an example of an historical event which is reported and memorialised inaccurately but consistently until the resulting fiction is believed to be the truth. So a historical event which is reported inaccurately but continually until the fiction is believed to be a, the truth. That's Tony Pandy. And it came about during the miners' strike going way, way back, before any of you can remember, to 1910-11, when there was a miners' strike, as I say, and Churchill, Winston Churchill, was the Home Secretary, and he made some troops, the army, available to help keep the peace. And many people, even now in South Wales, believe that those troops fired on innocent people. <clears throat> purported eyewitness accounts of alleged shootings persisted and they were relayed by word of mouth and the myth lived on. And two years after Churchill's death, which of course was in the 1960s, so a long time after, an Oxford undergraduate discussing Sir Winston's career with his tutor asserted confidently that Churchill had ordered <coughs> tanks to be used against the miners at Tony Pandy. His tutor commented that this showed remarkable foresightness on Churchill's part, as the tank had not yet been invented. <laughs> Vindication of a sort came from a surviving striker 55 years later. In a BBC interview, he said, we never thought that Winston Churchill had exceeded his natural responsibility as Home Secretary. The military that had come into the air there did not commit one single act that allows the slightest resentment by the miners. On the contrary, we regarded the military as having come in the form of friends to modify the otherwise ruthless attitude of the police. So that is what Tony Pandy is all about. And if you ask people about Mary Magdalene, the responses you get about her could be another example of Tony Pandy. You ask anybody who's actually heard of her, <clears throat> they'll perhaps tell you she was a prostitute, or she had a sexual relationship, or even married Jesus, and all sorts of things uh, like that. So it's important that we stick to the biblical account and not embroider her life with tradition. In fact, we know very little about her from scripture. But even so, we can be more confident about a real historical basis for her character than for any other gospel woman. <clears throat> I'm told... I'm told that hearing aids need to be on tea. I hope you all know what that means. So we have um, more evidence for Mary Magdalene than for any other gospel woman. 
and she appears consistently in every one of the four Gospels. And of course she does so as a witness to some of the most significant moments. So we first meet Mary in Luke 8, which I hope is going to appear behind me, where we read, after this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So that's the first occasion we meet Mary Magdalene. And it's possible that she was wealthy because she's associated with the affluent and politically connected Joanna, the wife of the manager of Herod's household. So that was quite a position. Magdalene is not her last name, but of course a reference to her town of origin, Magdala, in the region of Galilee. And in this almost throwaway comment, we learn that Mary has been set free from seven demons. Wouldn't it be interesting to know more about that? But we're not told any more than that. But what Luke tells us is quite amazing. And we tend, of course, to think of the 12 disciples and maybe some other men traveling around Israel with Jesus. But here, we learn that a group of women also accompanied them. And it was these women who provided the practical help. Well, don't we always, of course. But not simply, perhaps, by cooking and doing the washing and all those other things, but by giving financial support that maybe made the whole enterprise possible. That's quite a commitment from these women, from Mary Magdalene and others. So the first thing we learn about Mary is that she's a devoted follower of Jesus. And perhaps that seems obvious, given the change he had made in her life. But we hear of many others whose lives were changed by Jesus on an equally radical basis, and yet who don't apparently follow him day by day. So Mary at once stands out because of her devotion to Jesus. And that begs the question, doesn't it? Do we have the same attitude of discipleship? Many have experienced a dramatic life change on encountering him. For others, it could just be more a matter of fact it is less dramatic. And yet, when we stop to consider, we've all been saved from the death and judgment that we deserve. So we all start from the same place as sinners saved by grace. We ought to be prepared to travel wherever Jesus leads and give whatever he asks from all the blessings he has bestowed upon us. The next time we meet Mary is among another group of women at the scene of the crucifixion. <coughs> this is reported by all four gospel writers, and though Luke does not name her, we can infer that she was one of the women from Galilee, and we might have some verses that just show you that, that in all the four gospels, um, these women are there 
at the crucifixion. And so here we see yet another picture of devotion. The men, more or less, had all fled apart from John. They were probably hiding in terror. But these ladies overcame any fear of being attainted by association and faced full on the brutality of a Roman execution. Now, no doubt, it was a familiar sight in that land at that time to see a body hanging from a cross. It was a warning to all who would break the law. And we know much the same thing happened in medieval England with executed people being publicly displayed. But there's something very different, isn't there? (laughs) Watching the victim being put to death and that person being somebody you know and love, that is a very different proposition. That is commitment. So why did these women stand at the foot of the cross? Certainly wasn't to ogle or jeer, as many were doing. But what purpose did their presence serve? It would have been so easy, wouldn't it, for them to stay away and to justify their absence with logical, sensible reasons. It would embarrass Jesus to see them there, witnessing his degradation. It would be too much for his mother Mary. They should keep her safe and quiet till it was all over. What was the point of putting themselves through such sorrow? Better to remember him as he was. Of course, they may have been hoping for the superhero display, as Jesus produced another miracle and vanquished his enemies once and for all. But as that dreadful day dragged on, their hope of such a turnaround must have diminished and finally (coughs) trickled away altogether. Yet still, they stayed. (coughs) And Mary Magdalene was among those who remained at that final cry, it is finished. Mary was there because it was the only place she could be. Her devoted discipleship gave her the courage and the strength to watch all that happened and remain close to the cross, showing that some at least of Jesus' disciples were prepared to be identified with him on such a day and lend him such support as they could just by being there. As the poet John Milton puts it, they also serve who only stand and wait. They were the friendly face among a callous crowd. They could no longer help him with their material resources, but nevertheless they stayed and they would not leave. That's discipleship. Next, we learn from Matthew and Mark that Mary was among those who witnessed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus putting Jesus' body in the tomb. And we read of that at the end of those two Gospels, which may or may not appear before you. (coughs) After that long and traumatic day, finally there was something that the women could do. They could make sure that Jesus had a good burial. And you can imagine the activity that must have taken place in those three short hours 
from Jesus' death at about three o'clock until sunset at around six. After that time, Passover would begin and all work must cease. So Joseph and Nicodemus must have rushed around getting the necessary permissions to remove the body, getting the tomb opened up, and all that needed to be done. Meanwhile, the women must have done what they could with the time and resources available to prepare their master for burial. Once again, they were ready, thank you, Catherine. Once again, they were ready to use their means and abilities to help Jesus one last time. They watched in the garden and saw exactly where he was laid. Interestingly, David Pawson tells us that at the garden tomb, the stone bed is beautifully shaped out of solid rock. But at its foot, it's been roughly dug out to give a few extra inches. And you can see the marks of a pick as if it was suddenly used for the body of someone taller than the person that it was originally intended. Isn't that interesting? Mm. So it's then that we come to Mary's starling role, which of course is mainly recorded by John. And she is chosen to be the first person to encounter the risen Lord Jesus. So let's read now from John chapter 20 and the first 18 verses. <clears throat> Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave. <coughs> She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? 
Jesus asked her, Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, If you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, said Jesus. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go, find my brothers and tell them, I I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. What an amazing encounter she had. Imagine, if you will, those sorrowful few days between Jesus' death and resurrection. When Passover was being celebrated by the whole community, yet some were experiencing utter devastation and loss. Those women had to wait two two full days, if not three, before they could return to the tomb and finish the task of embalming Jesus' body. Tradition, of course, says that the crucifixion took place on a Friday, on Good Friday, but many people think that it was probably Wednesday or Thursday that it actually happened, but that's another story. However long they had to wait, it must have seemed like an eternity as the hours dragged by. They could do nothing practical, but probably simply go over the events that had happened. Maybe they were wondering if there was anything they might have done to change that final outcome. No doubt it was a time of bitter mourning and tears. And then... Very early on that Sunday morning, while it was still dark, a small group of women with Mary among them went to the tomb. And this in itself, if you think about it, must have been quite a scary thing for the few tired, sad women to do on their own. Okay, there was a full moon because it was the Passover, but these ladies were from Galilee in the main. They may not have been that familiar with Jerusalem, How would you like to find a tomb in a garden, in the dark, that you've only seen maybe once before, and that at the end of a very traumatic day? But they went. And Mark gives us the detail that they wondered who would roll the stone away. Now, of course, you know that this sort of grave would have that massive stone, perhaps a ton or more, rolled in a groove that would slope down for easier closing but would need to be pushed uphill probably by several strong men to release it and in this case of course seals had also been applied to it well might they worry how on earth they were ever even going to be able to get into the tomb to anoint Jesus' body and yet as it turned out this problem didn't exist but one they had perhaps never even considered did. The body wasn't there. And how often in our lives do we find ourselves in a similar situation? That enormous difficulty that we fret and worry over disappears before it's even an issue. 
but something we hadn't even considered suddenly blocks our way. And thus it was, of course, for Mary and for the others. And yet even here, the thing that seemed such a disaster wasn't that at all, because God had already dealt with it. <clears throat> In the first case, an angel had been sent to move the stone, not to let Jesus out, but to let the world in. And the women find him sitting on the rock, which he's flipped on his, its face in an apparently nonchalant manner. Here is power. A heavy stone was nothing to an angel with supernatural strength. And perhaps we don't take enough notice of angels and their care for us in our day-to-day -day lives. And then, of course, there was a mad dash through the streets of Jerusalem to find the disciples and tell them what the angels had said, which we don't read about so much in John. <clears throat> but John gives us the detail that at this point, all they can say is the body has been moved and they don't know where Jesus has been laid. And then, of course, Peter and John run quickly to the tomb. And you can imagine Mary following more slowly. She's out of breath. She's distressed. And perhaps she just doesn't know what to do or where to go. What should she do with herself? So she just automatically makes for the lonely place she can think of, the place of last association with the one she loved. When Jesus seems far away from us, do we return to where we last had sweet fellowship with him? Not maybe physically, but in our thoughts or through the scriptures. Maybe we've rushed off on the wrong track and need to retrace our steps to find again the one we love. So the disciples had returned from their visit to the tomb and Mary is once again apparently alone in the garden. And now she looks into the tomb again. Perhaps just to make sure she hadn't missed something as big as a body looking in there. And you know how it is when you lose something. You keep going back to where you think it should be and looking again. And it's obvious it's not there, but you keep doing it. And you get the sense that Mary was looking, well, was he really not there? Did I just miss something? But of course, this time instead, she sees these two angels sitting there calmly waiting for her. So the empty tomb was not actually empty at all. And Mary, it seems, was unfazed by her conversation with the angels. Perhaps in her former life, she had become accustomed to conversing with spirits, so this was not so unusual. And so for once, these angels can dispense with the usual fear not greeting, but simply ask her why she is crying. That must have seemed such a silly question to ask at a grave. And yet, to the angels, it must have seemed incomprehensible that anyone who had known and loved and followed Jesus could ask where he was. Of course he isn't going to be in the grave. He was a good man. He was the most perfect, sinless man who ever lived. Death is a direct result of the corruption and decay of sin. 
One who knew no sin, therefore, cannot remain dead. QED, as we say. Interestingly, Mary turns away. She doesn't prolong her conversation with the angels. She's not interested in angels. She is only concerned with Jesus. In her discipleship at this point, she has a one-track mind. And it's one that we would do well to emulate. How often have we missed out on a blessing because we have not fixedly pursued Jesus? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the writer to Hebrews reminds us. We often allow ourselves to be distracted by other things. Maybe too, Mary was so overwrought that she turned away from the angels to have a little more privacy for her grief-stricken tears. But in fact, there was very little privacy to be had in that garden that early morning. She turns away, only to find someone behind her. And the Greek implies that she just glanced over her shoulder. And with eyes full of tears and no doubt red raw from crying, it is perhaps no wonder that she didn't realise that her gardener was the one she most wanted to find. And of course, Jesus doesn't always come to us in the manner or the place that we might expect. God's works are new every morning. So we should start each day expecting to be surprised by all that he will do and where he may lead us. We need to learn to recognise Jesus' voice however it comes and in whatever situation we face. He asked Mary the same question as the angels, adding that supplementary, who are you looking for? Not what, but who. He wanted to take her from feeling to thinking. So far, she has been caught up in her emotions, but Jesus wants her to use her mind and start thinking clearly. This puts fresh heart into her, as with determination drying her eyes, she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Imagine Mary trying to carry the dead weight of a man's body. Such was her determination to do something for him. Yet she was still looking for the corpse, not a risen saviour. Next, Jesus takes her from ignorance to knowledge with just one word, Mary. John, in his gospel, has written this, not in the Greek of the rest of his book, but in Aramaic, the Hebrew dialect spoken up north in Galilee. In fact, Jesus calls her Miriam, the name she must have heard a hundred times on his lips, her native name in her native language. And of course, names are so important in the Bible, and never more so than here, when Mary is privileged to be the first to meet the risen Lord. In a rough part of Glasgow, a social worker was taking a survey. He knocked on a door and asked how many people lived there. And the woman who answered, and I won't try a Scottish accent, the woman who answered replied, there's Jimmy, Mary, Sadie and Bobby. Just give me the numbers, the social worker interrupted. The woman told him, there are no numbers in this house. They are all names to me. Likewise, we're all names to God. 
And of course, a gardener in Jerusalem wouldn't have said Miriam. And Jesus tenderly asked Mary why she is crying and then called her by name. Only then did she recognize him. And immediately, ignorance is changed to knowledge and sorrow to joy. And she responded in a similar manner with the Aramaic Rabboni, my dear teacher. And it appears that she then grabs Jesus as he has to gently put her away and tell her not to hold on to him. <coughs> Perhaps it was like a mother who has finally found her missing child who she hangs on to in a I'm never going to let you go again manner. Her form of address and the way she clung suggests her desire to resume the old attitude and relationship. She wanted to return to the way things had been before Jesus died, caring for him, providing for him, following him. Now she could shut out that nightmare of the last three days. Everything would be as it had been before. But Jesus had to tell her that she couldn't hang on to him anymore, any more than she could hang on to the past. Their relationship had changed. His physical body had changed and everything would be different now. And how often do we want to hang on to the past, that familiar country where we know the landscape? Again, we are reminded that we mustn't rely on how things have been or how they have happened in days gone by. You remember that on one occasion Moses had to strike the rock, but on another he was told to speak to it. God doesn't do the same things in the same way every time. What's right for one follower of Jesus may not be the best route for another. And so as Christians, we must not cling on to our past experience of God, but have that constant relationship with Jesus through the Spirit, whether we can see or touch him or not. That relationship should be one where we know he is with us, and so we don't need to cling on to him. Finally, we see that Jesus wanted to move Mary from self to others. She wasn't to cling on to him, to keep him all to herself. She was to go out and tell others. She was to be more concerned that others should know Jesus than she should. And Andy, of course, reminded us of this last week, that the cross and the resurrection are what really matter. And a good disciple will be more concerned with telling others about this than anything else. Mary the mourner became Mary the missionary. And it's sad, it's tragic, isn't it, when as a church, as Christians, we are more inclined to cling to Jesus, to sit at his feet in a holy huddle to try and learn from him, rather than to be going out into the world and telling him, telling them about the good news that we have. Perhaps then you have experienced deep sorrow like Mary. For two years at least she had followed Jesus, giving him all her time and attention, supporting, loving and depending on him, devoting her life to him. Then that life of deliverance and gratitude is blown apart by the crucifixion. Suddenly she is back in that black pit of despair akin to the spiritual bondage that had held her captive and controlled her life. 
And of course, there are many like Mary who have known God's love in their lives and who have had their lives dramatically changed. They've experienced that joy, that wonder, that excitement of following Jesus, and so they could not do enough for him. Then some circumstance of life, maybe a death or divorce or some other tragedy, removes the centre of their life. Certainties that they thought they could count on fade away. What to do? How does one return from depression to light and life? Well, what did Mary do? First, she went to the right place and spoke to the right people. Three times she went back to that tomb, even when everybody else had given up. When tragedy strikes, it's all too easy to want to hide away, even from Christian friends. When we're in the deepest, darkest sadness, sometimes we just want to pull that stone over us and hide under the bedclothes. But Mary didn't do this. Instead of staying at home and giving in to her grief, she went to the right place and kept asking the right questions to the right people. And while she diligently searched, she was found. Jesus came to her in her deepest despair, looked for her, calling her by name. As we too seek to be disciples of Jesus, we can have that same assurance that as we go through dark times, Jesus will come to us there, calling us by name, putting us back on our spiritual feet. But he won't let us necessarily linger in his reassuring embrace. He challenges us daily to tell others of our resurrection encounters with him. And so as we look back at Mary's story, we can summarise how she sets an example for us to follow on our Christian walk. We have each, like Mary, been saved by grace from that judgment and death we deserve. Mary was with Jesus through thick and thin, being there at his crucifixion, his burial, and following his resurrection. She had a reward for her devotion. She was the first to see the risen Jesus. She went from following and supporting Jesus through that deep sorrow at his death to joy at his resurrection. And I pray that we will each be inspired in the coming days to try and emulate her unselfish, sacrificial loyalty both in how we commit our lives to Jesus and how we, like Mary Magdalene, go to others, go out on the streets of Thatcham and Newbury, full of that joy and excitement, saying, I have seen the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.